Let's open our Bibles to the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. We finish this marvelous book today. We're in verses 8 through 21. Revelation 22, verses 8 through 21. Open your Bible, navigate on your tablet or your device so you can follow along. The topic we're going to find there, the revelation ends with the exciting announcement that Jesus Christ is coming quickly. The title of our message, Someone Worthy This Way Comes. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate that you have brought us to the end of this amazing study. I pray, Lord, that it would be something that fills our hearts with the wonder of your love. We've called it the grace of wrath, Lord, because throughout we've seen how you are reaching to lost men and women in radical, extreme, intense ways so that they would get saved, Lord, for time and for eternity. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and eternal life. Today, Lord, as we see the end of these revelations that you gave to John and the end of the revelation of yourself that you gave to him, I pray that we would be encouraged to go about the work of the ministry, Lord, that you've called us to. Fill our hearts with the wonder of your love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Is that your final answer? Host Regis Philbin made that question a pop culture phenomenon when he repeatedly asked it on the popular TV game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? He would present the question, give the contestant some time to think out loud about his or her answer, then ask, is that your final answer? They would then lock in their answer and say final, and their choice was done and it could not be changed. Now, this last chapter of the revelation of Jesus Christ is a final answer kind of text. Will you believe in Jesus and be saved? Or will you reject his offer of salvation and forever be outside of heaven, suffering eternal conscious torment? I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, if your final answer is yes, then you have words to declare. Number two, if your final answer is yes, then you have works to discover. Verses 8 through 11, let's look at our words that we have to declare. In Ray Bradbury's classic sci-fi story, Fahrenheit 451, books are outlawed and firemen burn any that are found. The title refers to the temperature at which books would ignite. I never read the book, but I remember a movie based on it. In the end, individuals had memorized whole books in order to pass them on to future generations. According to verses 7 and 9 of chapter 22, you are to, quote, keep the words of the prophecy of this book. That doesn't necessarily mean we must memorize the revelation, although that would be cool, but it does encourage us to hold it in high regard and to share its message. Sadly, the words of the prophecy of this book have fallen on hard times. While we might sometimes seem to overemphasize the revelation of Jesus Christ and prophecy in general, the vast majority of mainline Protestant Christianity is ignoring this book and Bible prophecy in general. One group writes on their website, the major problem with biblical prophecy from a Western perspective is that much of the Western church doesn't realize it is happening. Now, the study of prophecy from a literal futurist position has never been so relevant. Everywhere I go, average people are referring to things like the mark of the beast and the miraculous preservation of the nation of Israel. 
I had a conversation just the other day with a cashier I know at Walgreens. We got to talking about the new tapping of credit cards and stuff like that, and it immediately morphed into the end times. And so just as a large portion of the Church of Jesus Christ is showing no interest in prophecy, the general public is interested in prophecy. Television shows are dedicated to prophecy, or at least Armageddon-type themes. Uh, History Channel, Discovery Channel, all of those are dealing with these end times themes. People are interested and maybe even a little scared. We're the ones that can give them the hope that Jesus is coming and that everything is on track. And so verse eight, now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Angels are popular today, mostly as decorations. I wonder what they think about that. You know, angels are powerful, created beings who faithfully serve God as his messengers. Knickknacks don't seem to do them justice. If you're ever visited by an angel, hide your precious moments, angels. I don't think that's gonna go over too well. One thing we've learned in our studies is that we're gonna one day in the future be over the angels, giving them assignments. Maybe then they will collect figurines of you and you'll figure out what that's all about. Mine's okay as long as it's a bobblehead. I always wanted to be a bobblehead. Isn't that, well. Here's something to think about. John had been part of the inner circle of disciples along with Peter and James while Jesus was on the earth. He was close to Jesus, called the disciple Jesus loved. On Patmos, where he was exiled and receiving this revelation, he was a mature Christian having walked with Jesus 60 plus years. Even with all that going for him spiritually, his experiences overwhelmed him and he worshiped in a way that was not just uncharacteristic for him, it was actually wrong. He bowed down before an angel. If John could err, so can we. We almost always need to be exhorted to be more exuberant in our worship, but let's not be aberrant in our worship. We go to retreats, we go to conferences, we experience different things. That's great. We probably need to get our spiritual batteries recharged. But it's a fine line between uh, wanting to really let yourself go in worshiping the Lord and moving into areas that are actually aberrant, that are not worship at all. And all I'm saying is, I'm no John the Apostle. Uh, and if he can do this, if, if I mean, I think, isn't it stunned? Aren't you stunned at the end of this that John would bow down before an angel? You should be, I am. And it, it, it makes me want to be a little bit more cautious uh, about experiences that people bring and say, hey, this is the latest thing that is going through the church. Is it biblical? Is it from the Lord? Because I don't want to make an error. Verse nine, then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. The angel is content to identify himself as a servant and to identify with John and the prophets and all the saints who will read the revelation and keep the words of this book. This lets me know and reminds me that you and I are part of a much larger plan to bring the message of the gospel to those in need. You might never think of it, but angels are excited about the Lord bringing things to their conclusion. They rejoice in heaven when one sinner gets saved. They want to see the redemption of all things. They want to get back to more pleasant things 
like worshiping God. I mean, all of this human race stuff is a big distraction for angels. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it sent uh, us on a historic path that the angels weren't really excited about. And so they're interested in seeing people getting saved, they're excited about it, and seeing God redeem the universe. Worship God is great counsel, and not just as a correction for false worship as it is here, but for almost anything you face. Here's, a, here's something. If somebody's asking you for counsel and you don't know what to tell them, just say, hey, worship God. And, and they, they might not be excited about that, but it's everything you need to know is in those two words. There is a God who uh, is in charge, and you can worship him and ascribe him worth and draw close to him, and he will draw close to you. And so worship God, a great counsel. And as I thought about these words, I was reminded that sometimes the very best counsel is the simplest, most direct, most obvious. We've come to think that change requires a great deal of time and a lot of effort. I think our expectation of difficulty can hinder the work that God wants to do in our lives. Let me give you an example from the Bible. In the Old Testament, a Syrian commander, Naaman, went to the Jewish prophet Elisha to be healed of his leprosy. Elisha refused to see him, but he got a message out to him saying, go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. Naaman was furious. He wasn't used to being told things like this. He wasn't used to being ignored. Who did Elisha think he was? Didn't they have cleaner water in Syria that he'd already bathed in? Let's put that into perspective. What if you called the church for help and we refused to see you personally, but just said, hey, read these three verses? How would that go over? Well, people leave churches all the time over stuff like that. It it, it doesn't sit well with people. Naaman's annoyance, however, brings us to the heart of the story, the key moment. Naaman's servant said to him, If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? And so Naaman was expecting this to be difficult and to take a long period of time. And his servant said, why don't you just do the simple thing that the prophet told you to do? He went and did that. He did what Elisha had counseled. He dipped in the Jordan River. And when he came up the seventh time, he was completely healed of his leprosy. Keep things simple. Remember that God's word is also his enabling to obey and keep his word. Do what he says. God has never told us to do anything that he hasn't already empowered us to do by the indwelling spirit. And so when you read something in God's word and feel compelled to do it or are told to do it, you have the empowering to do it. You don't lack anything if you're filled with the spirit. Verse 10, he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. If we seal these words, our focus becomes manward, inward, and earthly rather than Godward, outward, and heavenly. The time period in which the prophecies of this book will take place is at hand, it says. If it was at hand in the first century, why is it still pending in the 21st century? Well, it may seem a long time has passed, but it's really nothing to the Lord. It's just a couple of days, really. All the while, he's been at work behind history to set up the events that precede his return. 
God is described by the omni words. He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. I conclude that it must take around 6,000 years in order for him to redeem what Adam forfeited in Eden. In other words, if there were any other way, a faster way, a better way, he would have implemented it instead of the plan we read in our Bibles. God looked at the situation that Adam and Eve had created and he said, guys, here's the plan. I'm going to come into your reality as a man and I'm going to take your place. I'm going to uh, destroy the serpent. He's going to bruise my heel. He's talking about the crucifixion. Uh, And then God began immediately to implement that plan. And it's the kind of plan that just takes the amount of time it takes, not a day more. And so when I or a non-believer accuse God of not knowing what he's doing, uh, hey, all you have to do is read any philosophy, any psychology, any other world religion. You want to find out what people think should have happened? Maybe like the world is on the back of a turtle or you know, some of the crazy ideas that people have. Uh, about what's wrong with the human race and how to make it right. Reincarnation, you want to be reincarnated? I don't. I want to be resurrected. Reincarnation is a loser plan. That's, that's for idiots, you know? I mean, you want to be reincarnated as a dog or a goat or a tsetse fly or something? No, you don't, believe it or not. You want to be resurrected. And, and so God's got this, he's got this, as we like to say. It just takes as long as it takes because of how it works out. Verse 11, he was unjust, let him be unjust still. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. He was righteous, let him be righteous still. And he was holy, let him be holy still. The prophecies of this book call for a decision or what we're calling a final answer. If you reject God's offer of salvation, you will remain unjust and filthy. The word unjust reminds me that I'm a sinner unable to stand before the just judgment of God. He can, however, justify me on the basis of Jesus taking my place on the cross. He can declare believing sinners righteous just as if I'd never sinned because I am in Jesus Christ. Filthy reminds me of that whole picture the Bible portrays of me as a sinner before God dressed in filthy rags that are inappropriate for heaven. When I believe in Jesus, he removes those filthy garments, something I cannot do for myself, and he gives me a pure white robe of righteousness. And so now I remain righteous and holy. That's my position before God. Most of us like to quote movie dialogue at some point. There's a line from a movie where they're training for customer service and the instructor to make his point says, you're putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) Gets the idea across. If there ever was a time to put the right emphasis on Bible prophecy, it's now. We are an amazing generation of people in terms of what's happening in the world. With Israel, with technology, with one world government, with world religion, with all of the things that we report on, I admit, not that we did it on purpose, but back in the late 70s and the early 80s, when you look at some of the predictions back then and looking at the news, it was a stretch. It was like, this maybe sounds like this. 
And, and then, you know, we were always talking about how there was going to be an immediate invasion of, of Israel because the, the Soviet Union had to be destroyed militarily because that's all we could conceive. And then all of a sudden, overnight, there was no Soviet Union. And you step back and you think, oh, oh, this is what the Bible is talking about. It's not like that anymore. I could do five or six prophecy updates a week. There's plenty of stuff to talk about, about the temple and all these other issues. We're the generation that is seeing the acceleration of these things like never before. This is the time to talk about Bible prophecy. Let's not be pressured into ignoring it by skeptics and critics and scoffers who say, well, where's the promise of his coming? His long-suffering waits for sinners to get saved. But I think we've seen in this book that once he's done waiting, it's going to be on. And there's going to be a seven-year period of time before the coming of Jesus Christ. So let's get, let's get with it. Now, verses 12 through 17, if your final answer is yes, then you have works to discover. One of the criticisms leveled at us as premillennials who believe in the imminent rapture of the church is that we want to escape the responsibilities of making the earth a better place. The rapture is not an escape, but think about it for a minute. It's an abduction. We're not going to escape. I'm not trying to escape. Jesus is going to abduct me. He's coming to snatch us away. Don't accuse me of wanting to get away from my responsibilities. He's the one who's coming to take me away. If you have a problem with the rapture, your beef is with Jesus. Meantime, we are trying to make the earth a better place. The only way that it can improve by our good works that represent Jesus to non-believers so that they too will get saved. Hey, we're coming into an election year. I'm praying that a decent candidate with integrity will, will be revealed and that we'll have a great president. So that's not a problem. But ultimately, you and I, looking at each other across the table, would have to say what America needs is spiritual revival. If more people were Christians we would have a better nation. We wouldn't be passing crazy laws. The courts wouldn't be doing crazy things. And so that's our plan. And, and it's a good plan because it, it functions in time and for eternity. We're concerned not just about the laws of our land. We're concerned about where people spend eternity. So that's our plan is to discover the good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them and let people see Jesus so that they'll get saved the way we are and be right the way we are. Got it? I mean, because we're right, aren't we? Yes, we are. I'm not being facetious. We are right. I'm not talking about the political right, although that's true too, but we are right about what's happening in the world and we, we don't always agree on everything, but we see clearly on the big moral issues of our day. Now, works and doing his commandments are the theme of these next verses. The teaching of Bible prophecy should always encourage biblical action. We don't go out and sit on a mountain waiting for him to come. In fact, in the letters that teach most emphatically about the rapture, the Apostle Paul addresses lazy believers who are mooching off of others, saying that the Lord's coming is soon, so why get a job? Paul says, hey, I have a word for you. If you don't work, you don't eat. And so he wasn't one of these uh, pie-in-the-sky kind of guys that says, oh, just wait for the Lord to go back. He says, no, you have work to do, and you have a short time to do it because the Lord could come back at any minute. 
Verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. As I've pointed out repeatedly in these studies, quickly doesn't mean soon. It means suddenly. It means that Jesus could return for us at any moment. When Jesus comes for the church, he will resurrect those who have died, then rapture the living believers to heaven where we will stand before him and be rewarded. You'll be rewarded on the basis of your works. Now, the thing I always like to emphasize about works is that they are something God leads us into. He already knows what they are, what he would like them to be, and he leads us into them. They're things he has planned for us that we are supposed to discover. In Ephesians 2.10, we read, I already quoted this, but the verse goes like this, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance or beforehand for us to do. So God is doing his work in us and that work is to make us more and more like Jesus every day. He is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. After you get saved, you are predestined to become like Jesus. He who began this good work in you, he will absolutely, certainly complete it. Growing up, because my family owned an auto shop, there was always a project car in our garage. The first one I remember was a dune buggy conversion. And it was there for a long time because my brothers always insisted on using Corvair motors. And they they didn't quite line up right and nothing ever really worked right, but there was a dune buggy conversion. Then there was my oldest brother's Avenger GT fiberglass car. Uh, That was pretty cool. And then years upon years after, uh, my brother's Alfa Romeo was parked in there. No one quite knew what it was doing there and why it didn't run. Uh, But it was there for years until it disappeared one time. My dad couldn't take it anymore and he pushed it off a cliff. But anyway, (laughs) we've talked about our mansions in heaven None of them are going to feature a garage in which those who are still a work in progress are kept. No matter when God starts his work on us, no matter how many times we resist it, we will be perfected when we stand before him to be rewarded. There's not gonna be like an event in the New Jerusalem and people say, hey, where's Gene? Gene's still in the garage. He he made it into heaven, but he's not quite right. And so... (laughs) in the garage there, he's covered with a tarp in the garage and there's a bunch of stuff on top of him and Jesus is going to get to him just as soon as he can, but you know, he's still a work in progress. No, all of us are going to be complete. Somebody's going to be the last Christian saved and then the rapture. That guy's got about one second to get right with God, but the Lord's going to see him complete. And then there's the rest of us who are backsliding and and giving the Lord a hard time. The Lord's going to finish us and we're gonna stand before him. And so you need to be encouraged about that. That's God's work uh, in us. Now, the verses also mention God's work through us. Those are our good works which we discover as we walk with him. The good works that God has prepared in advance for you to discover, they are how you build a successful spiritual life that impacts the world around you. It is imperative you actually believe there are things for you to discover things that God wants to empower you to perform. All of you who are Christians, I think if you give it some thought, you can see how God has led you in certain ways. I know in my own life, as far as being here in Hanford for the past 30 years, I can look back and see God's leading to come to a place that I didn't know existed 
through relationships that were formed many, many years earlier and other things that all had to fall in place just a certain way so that this person who I knew here ended up over here so that I could end up there and end up here. And it's an amazing thing when you think, hey, God actually led this thing. And it's not just pastors or missionaries. Every Christian has some testimony like that as far as what's happening in your life. Now, sometimes you're a little bit bummed out about how God has led you. You wake up in Hanford and say, what am I doing here? How did I get led here? You need to get over that and start thinking about how God has led and is leading your life and believe that there are yet good works for you to discover. We need to quit looking back and always look ahead to the things that God still wants us to find. There's a deception in our churches that the work of the ministry is done by pastors and missionaries. That's not true. Pastors, myself, are tasked with equipping saints to do the work of the ministry. We're here today to be encouraged, to be built up, to be pumped up, I guess you might say, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that all of us can go back to where we live and work and play and do the work of the ministry, which is revealing Jesus Christ through our good works. We're to devote ourselves to bringing Jesus and the gospel to the places God has placed us. Ask the Lord to show you how to increase your witness and his presence where you work, where you play. What can you do? Uh, There's some simple things that the Lord will probably show you. Uh, For example, if you're not I, 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 don't, I get criticized now because I don't really carry a Bible anymore. I have like 75 Bibles on my phone. But if you work someplace and you have a desk, bring, a big, bring the biggest Bible you can find. Some gigantic Bible that commands the attention. Make it the center of your desk so that people know that you have some relationship with at least the Bible. And then you can tell. But there are things that you can do uh, and do them until your boss tells you you can't do them. You know, just put up Christian posters, listen to Christian music, do all of that. And then when you start to get in trouble for it, then you can have that discussion. But there are things that you can do to bring Jesus along and to let people know that you love him. Verse 13, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus speaks for himself He gives three strong statements that only God could claim. You know, sometimes the cults say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, he did, even in the Gospels where they're talking about, but they forget that he made statements in the Revelation too. There are words in red in this book that Jesus says that can only be true since he is God. Verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Some translations have the phrase, wash their robes instead of do his commandments. In either case, these describe you rather than challenge you. Now, here's what I mean. You're not blessed only if or because you do his commandments. That's, that's how we tend to read this. We think, well, if I want to be blessed, I'm going to have to do God's commandments. I'm going to have to obey him. Well, but what's really being said here, though, is you do his commandments by his power because you are blessed by him. You're saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you. That's God's blessing enabling you to be able to do his commandments, which guess what? You want to do. I know you want to do them. 
It's not a matter of not wanting to do them. Nobody who's a Christian sits around all day and says, I wish I didn't have to do what God wanted me to do. I hate all the stuff God wants me to do. No, you want to do it and you struggle thinking that you have to, you know, really strain at it. And God is saying, no, you, you misunderstand. I've already blessed you. You can do it. It's simple if you're filled with the Spirit. Likewise, this translation, if it's wash your robes, it's not an exhortation for you to do your own spiritual laundry. You're, you don't come to church and get all, you know, see all of your stains, you know, the, let's shine a light on all of your stains. Like, like in those cop shows where they have the, turn off the lights and get the UV light out, and you're like, oh, ooh, ah, you know? You go home and you think, I gotta get all cleaned up, you know? What am I gonna wash with? No, the Lord is the one that does the laundry. In Ephesians, he said, he was washing you and cleansing you to present you faultless before the Father. And so, yeah, we do get all stained out in the world. If you've been out you know, in the world this week, which you have from last Sunday to now, you've picked up a lot of thoughts and you've seen a lot of things and you've heard a lot of things and you're just all picking up that filth from the world and you come in and get reminded that Jesus is about the business of washing you and cleansing you with the word of God, getting you back to a place where you can handle what's going on out there and, and do it for another few days until you get washed again. These are promises for you, not prescriptions. The tree of life was seen earlier in this chapter. It was in the Garden of Eden originally, but mankind was barred from eating from it after Adam and Eve sinned, and that was God's grace. We won't be going back to the Garden of Eden. The tree of life is going to be transplanted in a city, the New Jerusalem. Sometimes I think we forget that. People tend to think of heaven as a return to the Garden of Eden. God has something much greater planned for us. The New Jerusalem is way better than Eden. Those who think we need to get back to nature need to understand that paradise is not a cabin in the woods, but it's a city whose builder and maker is God. You know, we normally think of simplifying our lives, getting away from the city, out in the suburbs, out in the country, out to a cabin, running water, no running water inside, just outside. I mean, I don't know what's luxurious about that, but, you know, we're just back to nature. Oh, this is how man was intended to live. No! That's how things started, but things are not going to end that way. You're not going to have a cabin in the woods. We're all going to live in a beautiful city. God is into city life. So I'm not going back to the garden. Crosby, Stills, and Nash sang that Joni Mitchell song, Woodstock. In it, they long to get back to the garden. You remember that song? Got to get back to the garden, and they meant the Garden of Eden. Their idea of the garden is expressed in the song as losing the smog and as bomber jet planes turning into butterflies. Only if you've had LSD do you know what that means. <laughs> Woodstock, the music festival without enough bathrooms and where three people died, was, they thought, a return to Eden. Well, that's a pretty low view of heaven. Woodstock, New York, or the New Jerusalem. God's got something greater in store than a hippie music festival. So we're not heading back to Eden. Eden's done with. That was a testing ground. It was beautiful. It's gone. Tree of life is being preserved for our home in the New Jerusalem. Outside, verse 15, are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now, this doesn't mean they're right outside trying to break in. 
It means they are forever outside of the new heaven and new earth, having been cast into and confined in the lake of fire. The verse mentions dogs. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul calls the Judaizers dogs. Now, these were uh, Jews who, pardon the expression, dogged Paul's travels. They came in after him and tried to tell the believers they were not saved until they practiced the Jewish ritual of circumcision and kept the law of Moses. We would expand this to include all false teachers and their teaching. Sorcerers has to do with both the occult and drug use. Sexual immorality is anything and everything sexual outside of God's loving boundaries in a biblical marriage. Murderers are murderers. That's an easy one. You know, I love people always say, in the Greek, this means, well, murderers are murderers. Idolaters is a catch-all category. If you're not worshiping the living God, you're worshiping someone or something else, we are hardwired to worship something. As Bob Dylan said, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. You have to worship somebody. And idolatry is, if you're not worshiping the Lord, then you're an idolater. Whoever loves and practices a lie, in context, this would refer to those in the tribulation who believe the lie of the Antichrist. And so again, we're talking about people who've made a final answer and their answer is to reject Christ forever. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I'm the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Wait a minute, did he just say churches? Because we haven't heard that word since the opening of the book. It's part of our argument that Jesus will resurrect and rapture us prior to the tribulation, that the church is not mentioned at all, not once, in chapters 6 through 18, while the tribulation is being described on the earth. As the root of David, he preceded David. As the offspring of David, he came through David's line as a descendant. How can Jesus both proceed and follow David? Well, it's because he is God come in human flesh. The bright and morning star is the herald of the breaking of a new day. Satan aspired to that title, but it belongs to Jesus Christ. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who, is thirst, uh, who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The Holy Spirit and the bride, meaning the church, are God's agents to invite lost men to receive Jesus Christ as their savior in the age in which we live. Whoever desires may come to Jesus. And so who is it that hears and thirsts and desires? We would say it is all men everywhere. A friend messaged me an acrostic this week. Christ offers forgiveness for everyone everywhere. It spells out coffee. <laughs> coffee is spiritual, just as I have always thought. Seriously, though, the Bible says we were created with eternity in our hearts. I like that verse. I use it a lot. It means there's something about being human where you recognize that there's something greater, something outside yourself that needs to fill your heart. Jesus said that being lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. Interesting. Does that mean everybody's saved? No, because later on the Bible says he is the savior of all men, but especially those who believe, meaning that is the one uh, condition for salvation. And, and so... A lot of times people will say, no one can come to God or hear or thirst or desire God unless God takes the initiative. And we would say to that, yeah, of course not. 
We would agree with that. No one can hear or thirst or desire God unless God takes the initiative. But then we would say, He has taken the initiative on the cross where He said, I am capable of drawing all men to Myself, not just a small group of men, not an elect group of men, not a limited group of men, but all men potentially, especially those who believe. We believe that God's grace goes before freeing the will so that a person can decide to receive or reject Christ. Now what follows is a most solemn warning. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The book in question is this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. While this is probably applicable to the whole Bible, it's talking about the prophecies of this book. These verses describe any efforts by non-believers to undermine these prophecies. The people being described here have no part in eternity. Throughout this chapter, there are final answers. These, we're talking about people who are saved, people who are not saved because they've given their final answer. Now, we are called upon to convey this warning to non-believers. That means we should speak about prophecy in our witnessing, letting people know what the world is coming to. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. So when is Jesus coming? Quickly, meaning suddenly. John understood this to refer to the rapture because he adds, even so, come Lord Jesus. He knew Jesus' second coming is preceded by at least a seven-year tribulation. So there's no way he would invite Jesus to come immediately knowing the future calendar unless he was referring to the rapture. The imminent pre-tribulation, premillennial return of Jesus was important to John. It affected how he lived and he told us how it affects how all of us live in 1 John chapter 3 when he wrote, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, waiting for the Lord to return imminently has the uh, effect of purifying me because I want to keep myself constantly ready to see him. And if you're busy conveying a warning to others, you normally are careful yourself. What you believe about the rapture and its timing does affect your entire life. Verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. You warn others in the context of grace. It's because you love them with the love of Jesus Christ that you warn them, that you explain to them what is happening and what is going to happen. Prophecy is a great proof of the love of God as he is shown to give ample warning to men to repent and be saved. The Spirit says, come. The Holy Spirit is in the world today restraining the flood of sin. I don't think we have any idea what it could be like if the church wasn't in the world, if the Holy Spirit living in the church wasn't in the world. He's grieved at what he sees. His ministry is to reveal and glorify Jesus. Here we learn in what I believe is the only prayer recorded that the Holy Spirit utters in Scripture, he longs for Jesus to return. The bride says come. The church on earth is the bride of Christ. The church collectively ought to long for his coming just as a bride awaiting for the coming of her bridegroom to marry her. 
If people have something to say about a church, it ought to include that they are a community of people that is asking the Lord to return. He who hears says come. The individuals in churches, you and I ought to in our personal lives live in the expectancy of the imminent pre-tribulation, pre-millennial return of Jesus. And then he says, let him who thirsts come. This refers to non-believers who are parched for a drink of the free living water offered to all by Jesus. They must come and take freely receiving him by faith as we perform our good works that he has before ordained that we would walk in them, that they would see Jesus and have their hearts touched by the grace of God. And so this is why as we come to the end every week, I say the same thing at the end of our prophecy update. Let's say it together. Get ready, stay ready, keep looking up, ready or not, Jesus is coming. Let's pray.